This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. We must increase vaccinations among the unvaccinated with new vaccination requirements. It's not going to work. We have other countries with much higher rates of vaccination and they're seeing record surges of COVID because that's what viruses do. Many of us are frustrated with the nearly 80 million Americans who are still not vaccinated. Them their freedom. I want my freedom to live. Rest in peace, Wheezy. We are going to need the people to engage in age-old American tradition of simply saying, no, I'm not going to comply. Now, what are you going to do about it? It never stops. They want things to get worse because they want you to suffer so that they can grandstand on your suffering and push for even more control. They have criminalized freedom. They've made getting sick illegal. This isn't about COVID any more than the Patriot Act was about Al-Qaeda. It's about government asserting more control over your lives, your rights, your properties, and in this case, your bodily autonomy. It has a lot of vaccinated people alarmed because of the power grab that's involved. Enough is enough. We better change our tune and start resisting. Government makes up less than 1% of the population. If even 5 or 10% of Americans simply refuse to comply, all of this goes away. Absolutely, this is the hill worth dying on. We haven't given the statutory authority to any agency to do this kind of thing. There is no such thing as government power. There's only what we are willing to comply to. We're in the tough stretch and it could last for a while. That's what this has always been about. It's never about what they say it is. It's about controlling you. And it ends when we decide to end it. This BS is going to stop. It's time for us to wake up. There's only one way to fight back against this, and it's mass non-compliance. This is the most important thing to fight against. You can help stop this. You are the power. There's nothing, not a single thing we're unable to do if we do it together. I'm fucking livid that we are stuck in the timeline where Alex Jones is right. Oh no! Why aren't the Amish afraid of of COVID? Because they don't have TVs. Instead, democracy is a system that reinforces authoritarian ideals. I hope I don't get canceled. Being a victim of a tragedy doesn't make you an expert in public policy. But, I mean, AOC's a drama queen and she's full of <laughs> shit. Remember, they lost the Afghan war 10 years ago. <laughs> you brought a freaking guillotine. They said, you don't get to tell us no. We're in the State Health Department. And I said, hell no. It wasn't making Christianity better. It was making rock worse. <laughs> what the fuck do you have on your face, Olivia? You want to make the world a better place? Have some babies and raise them to not be stupid. Remember thinking, man, governments are not going to like this shit. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, activists, shit posters, and people of the internet, thank you for tuning in to another episode of O'Donnell for Liberty. As always, I'm your host, Justin. Before we get started, just remember whatever platform you listen on, whether YouTube Live, Odyssey, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, or on the air at LRN.FM, you can help grow the show by liking, commenting, subscribing, and sharing with your friends. If you enjoy the content, you can join our production team by visiting patreon.com slash O'Donnell for Liberty. Again, that's patreon.com slash O'Donnell, the number four Liberty. If you want to keep in touch between shows, follow me on social media and join our community Discord channel where you can chat with other fans of the show at any time. All these links can be found in the description of the video or podcast you're listening to, as well as on O'Donnell for Liberty.com. So check that description for that link and make sure you check it out today. 
Tonight, we're going to be talking about agorism, podcasting, content creation, the anarchist handbook we can touch on, and how the LP probably isn't the path to liberty in our lifetime. We're going to take questions, so make sure you hit the like button, leave some comments, and tell us what you think in the chat, and give a warm welcome to tonight's guest, Liberty Twitter's favorite agorist and host of the No Way Jose podcast, Jose Galison. Jose, how are you doing today? Doing all right. What's up, man? You've gotten really good at the the beginning part, the like intro, that little part. You got like <laughs> it almost sounds like a read that you just like clicked. But uh, no, you legit are just doing that every time. I'm kind of impressed. I still fuck up like every time. So <laughs> yeah, something hey, else. I, I I think that's just a translation of like I, my background is working in sales before I got involved in politics, mm. and that just kind of comes naturally once you've learned how to give an ad read a hundred times. Yeah, so. I can't. I, I, I have. I had an ad read. I, I'm not gonna be playing anymore. Uh, I'm not not with that person, that uh, group anymore. They're great guys. No, 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 nothing issue. But we're just not advertising with them anymore. But uh, yeah, it was awful. I, I did it like probably ten times. I still, it's still an awful ad read. I, I only can do like the ad lib, like this type thing, pretty fairly well. I mean, I guess the the, the audience can be the judge of that. But uh, yeah, no, any sort of like read. Or like, uh, you know, not or like inorganic type thing. It just, it just doesn't vibe for me. So, I, I fuck it up every time. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. Should be fun. There's a lot, of, a lot of stuff going on. I'm not gonna lie. I'm a little exhausted talking about all the uh, like the the LP stuff and all that stuff. But I, I don't know. I, I, tr I try to move away from it because I was a, uh, I did that for a long time. Uh, I don't, I don't like being the guy that's uh, just railing against the LP because that. I honestly, at the end of the day, I don't care that much, right. but people the, ask my opinion and people want to talk about it. I'll talk about it with, you know, the problem but. is they make it so hard not to mm -hmm. like the, the libertarian party, especially given the time and age that we live in, given what's going on in the world where we are living through both the fall of Rome and the collapse of the American empire, as well as the biggest government power grab in history. And the Libertarian Party, the one political entity that's supposed to be standing against these things, is just an utter dumpster fire. Yeah. I I, I uh, was listening to today. I mean, I didn't listen to all of it. I don't even know if I will because it was like a four-hour stream. Uh, um, friggin' uh, Matt Erickson had on uh, Cyprian now, or Vin. And uh, I, I, one thing I got out of it that I thought was pretty interesting, he made an analogy about like missing the mark. Uh, and so he was kind of like uh, translating over to like praxis or like, you know, like what we need to do. Uh, and, and like, obviously, you know, there's like a specialization and people can do different things. But if you're doing something that's not maximizing like the possibilities of what you could be doing, it's like more important now than it ever was. Because it's like even if you even if you're not necessarily wasting your time, but you're not doing the, the, the ideal thing you could be doing. It's in today's world, it's kind of a big deal because he made the, the, the analogy of missing the mark and kind of equating to like practicing, like, like shooting or something. He's like, okay, well, before we were practicing, uh, and now we're at a point where, all right, here's a dude charging at you with a knife. Uh, if you miss, this is, this is fucked. So you really need to make sure you're uh, closing in on the mark as close as you possibly be. The mark being what you should be doing, ideally. Right. So, well, I mean, then there's always the Jeremy Kaufman approach where it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're not doing it in New Hampshire, you're not doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, that that is, I, I will say the Free State Project, I, I just listened to Pete's uh, episode on it. I don't think he's released publicly. Uh, so, you, anyway, it's on his Patreon. Uh, he has, a, I think his lowest tier is like $2 for anyone wants to get up on it. Uh, I, I got on it recently for the Dave episode because that was pretty good. But uh, yeah, it was it was cool. Yeah, them kind of burying the hatchet a little bit because I know they had a beef about the uh, Free State Project, and I will say the Free State Project is like, 
I think they're like close to the mark. If if I was gonna put it that way, you know what I mean? Like I don't think it's the mark. If I was gonna guess, but we're all talking out of our ass when we're talking about Praxis, which that was something even Rothbard t- touched on in Anatomy Estate that like we don't really know when it comes to Praxis, but you know, and so that's like something I do think we should be humble, and so I think we should have these conversations, but I I also think we should try our best to not get ass mad. And if someone's going to get ass mad, it's almost like you're better just not even have the conversation. Cause at the end of the day, we're all on the same team. Uh, we just may disagree with, you know, the, the route that some people are going. So, I mean, I don't know. I guess I don't like if for me, if I'm going to interact with somebody on like when it comes to, like practice or what we should do, if they get like super butthurt about it, I'm like, okay, well, I just won't have this conversation with you. Like, what, what's the point? Like I, there's no point burning a bridge or, you know, destroying a relationship when we're on the same team, if you're not like mature enough to have this conversation and not get upset, then I mean, whatever, it's, it's not really worth it to fuck up, fuck it up over that when it's like, we're on the same team anyways. So, you know, well, I think a lot of what, a lot of the problem being had is the numbers problem. And so who's involved problem, not necessarily who's not doing what, because everybody who's involved for the most part is doing what they at least think they're best suited to do. Mm. And that might, might not, they might not be the case that they're actually doing what they're best yeah. suited to be doing, but it's what they think they're best suited to be doing. And they're at least putting in some sort of an effort. It's just, there's so few people in the grand scheme of things who are fighting for human liberty and freedom and libertarian ideals that it's, a real uphill battle. And so I think a lot of what is important to do that is finding people who can grow the movement. Because once you start bringing more people in, you have more people to do the things that need to be done and it's easier to gain momentum. One of the reasons the Free State Project has been so successful in New Hampshire is because it's had an exponential growth. In the first year, there was like 40, 50 movers, but now there's like 6,000 of us. And yeah. it, it grows every year. We've seen the biggest number of visitors and new movers this year than ever in the past. And it gets bigger and bigger as it goes. And to that point, like one of the things I did want to talk to you about and ask about is like something that you've been doing with your show going over the anarchist handbook is Michael Malice has done more to reach outside of the libertarian echo chamber with anarchist thought by stealing other people's ideas of long dead authors and not even having to put in the work to do something original just repackaging it in a way that people would actually read it yeah no i mean i don't really know what to say and i do think uh a lot of that is wrapped up in him uh and i also think it was also like he just hit at the right time and that like people were ready for that message uh i do think weirdly malice is one of these characters that like exudes anarchy like uh I, i don't even know how to put it other than that um like which kind of gets to my point. I know you were talking about growing the movement, and I don't have anything against growing the movement, but I guess right. that's not necessarily my main concern. A lot of people are making the thing of like liberty or like, because I don't really care if we have more libertarians. Like, I do in a sense, but that's not what I care more about is liberty. So, like, and I guess in a weird way, I'm kind of making the case for elitism, which I guess is in a lot of ways is kind of the, the wealth, power, influence, you know, stuff like that. Yep. But it doesn't necessarily have to be bad. That's kind of what the elites do already. Like, they, uh, they create um, the, like they basically become the elites and people kind of naturally fall in line with them. So if we can start, you know, I know people make fun of like, once again, not to bring up Matt, I'm like, I definitely have some, some minor issues with some things, but you know, everyone gave him like the, just be rich or, or or don't be poor or whatever the fuck he said. But there, there's something to that. If you get to a point where you're an upstanding member of your community, um, people will kind of, you know, fall in line, which is kind of plays into something uh, uh, Jeremy was talking about in Pete's episode that uh, they just talked about the Free State Project, where they were kind of talking about how 
in the culture you have uh because he was kind of talking about the free state project how now it's kind of becoming more of a culture of liberty uh and people kind of fall in line uh and uh, this is actually more of the populist argument in a sense but it also applies to elitist argument because he's talking about how they have this populace of more and more liberty people and so the people most people don't really care about this stuff so they kind of just fall in line where people are at um so but obviously we're working with less numbers so we can't have a free state project everywhere but it's that same basic idea if you have the elites you know if we become the elites uh because like you said we don't have the numbers right. so uh, it that kind of naturally draws a populist towards you you know if you're the person who you know is owns multiple businesses is you know involved in the community whatever i mean i'm not that person at all i'm don't no one mistake me for saying that like that's what i am i just i think there's definitely a case to be made whether you, wh whatever doesn't necessarily have to be you know business or whatever just you know aspiring to make yourself better even on a personal level will naturally on a day-to-day -day basis draw people more towards liberty like uh, you know, and that's kind of a lot of what agorism is or wealth, power and influence, which I've made the case that the whole wealth, power and influence thing is kind of just a repackage agorism in a lot of ways. So with more of a focus on personal wealth and I think honestly, actually a more realistic idea of the future in some senses, because that's one of the things with agorism where they kind of talk about like in the future, it'll take down the state. And I'm not necessarily saying it's wrong, but I think the wealth, power and influence has more of a realistic idea of like, We'll more have enclaves of liberty, and maybe that'll grow. Like you know, what I mean. <laughs> yeah, so, no, it, it, that's really what it is. Like when I look at agorism, I look at enclaves of liberty, uh, enclaves of counter-economics, and people just yeah. doing their own thing and ignoring the state. But the reality of the world we live in is that as much as you wish you could pretend to ignore the state, just ignoring the state isn't going to make the boot on your neck any lighter. And I, I think that's. That's a problem we had here in New Hampshire with the Free State Project for a long time is we had a huge influx in people just doing agorism and voluntarism and just opting out of the state in not participating in the political process. And I do think it takes both. I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily agree nor disagree. I think by not involving yourself in the p political process, you in a, in a roundabout way kind of affect the political process because now there's this disaffected group that you know, the politi politicians are going to kind of want to. Um, it's kind of the idea is the way I look at it. If you can just apply it to like a math problem, the the idea that like if all of us – I mean, I know this is unrealistic because there's probably be some in the chat like, this isn't going to happen. Yeah, I'm not saying. This is just a, a thought experiment. If everyone just stopped voting today or stopped paying taxes or whatever, it would be – the state would basically no longer exist. But I think you mathematically can kind of apply it to, well – what if 10%? What if 20%? What if 30%? What if 40%? You know, and then they kind of has this effect on, you know, the larger, like it kind of, to some extent, it reduces it. And it also kind of creates this community that the, the politicians are going to want to appeal to. They're also going to realize that, hey, if we have a 80% of the populace isn't voting, they're going to be like, well, maybe we can't just jam through whatever the fuck we want. Like, you know, like... <laughs> I wish, I really wish, but like... We, we had an election here in Manchester, New Hampshire yesterday, and we had libertarian candidates up and down the ballot. It's nonpartisan election. There was LP members on the ballot, Republican Liberty Caucus people on the ballot, all in nonpartisan races, mayor, city aldermen, school board, everything. Democrats swept the election like in outrageous majorities, with the exception of like one district where the libertarian lost by 50 votes. But less than 20,000 people in a city of 200,000 showed up to vote. 
And the Democrats aren't going to take that as a sign that they don't have a mandate. They're going to take that as a, we got reelected, we're pushing through our mandate. Yeah, but I mean, if, you, if you're applying, if you have a community of like agorists and stuff, they're kind of creating, I mean, this is why you also need to pair it with creating a counter economy. If you're right. just simply not voting, yes, there is some argument to that. But now if you're also not voting and also kind of to some extent, I mean, I wouldn't say ignoring the state, but just kind of, you know, mo moving around it, doing what you want, you know, instead of seeing something be like, well, that's illegal. I can't do it. You instead you're thinking, well, what is the risk of doing this and what is the benefit? You know, like you're, you're more looking at things from a cost benefit analysis. You're going to get to a point where it's like they kind of can't like, yeah, OK, cool. Like. Yeah, they, 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 the Democrats in there, but if you have like to apply my previous example, if you had 80% of the people not voting, it's like, well, and you know, ideally kind of interacting in the counter economy, it's like, cool, they can apply a vax mandate, but it's like, if these are people involved in the counter economy, things are going to arise to be able to combat that. And also, I think you, when you do that, you kind of create incentives that drive people towards liberty because, you know, obviously people always bring up the example of Bitcoin. You bring up the example of like Lyft, Uber, stuff like that. If you start creating these, you don't even really need to convince people of liberty or convince people of libertarianism or agorism or whatever. They just kind of start going by it because their incentives, you know, align that way. You are essentially – and this is why a lot of people – I'm not trying to make the case. A lot of people talk about agorism. They make the case that that's what brought down like Soviet Union stuff. I don't have a strong enough grasp on history to really make that case. I know that's the thing Konkin did. I'm not making the case, but even then, it is a well-known fact that, like, during the, the the height of communism, the counter economy thrived. But that's because people needed that. They, they, like, they they were able to have cheaper products, stuff like that. And I mean, the problem is that they're kind of doing it in a situation in which it's dire. Instead of like, I mean, obviously it's a little bit more dire now. But say we had been applying this theor this theory. 10 years ago it seems to be like we don't really start applying praxis until we really fucking need it you know what i mean that's when we really start being like oh shit which is kind of the seems to be the through line for us liberty folks uh from 2020 is oh shit this is real like maybe we should actually be doing something because it was theory before and now we're like oh shit we need praxis like you know what i mean we can't we can't just like yes it's great to have the message out there and stuff like that. But we need a little bit more of that. You need to start living to some extent. And also realizing that living in that way has its incentives. Because I'm I'm very much an egoist. And I, I you know, I'm I, like, I, I more I'm looking how things improve my life. And I think liberty actually improves your life on an individual basis. So, like, I, I'm not even, I forgot my train of thought. But I do think liberty, you know, is advantageous to yourself as well. So, like, living that way has its benefits too so no, I'm, I not, I'm not yeah i'm not saying with agorism like go get yourself locked up at all like i had, I had an uncle who in the 80s made a living smuggling vhs players into austria yeah um that's how he made his living in europe with buying vhs players for five dollars and smuggling them to austria to sell them for a hundred because people wanted them so badly and the soviet union said they couldn't have them uh, yeah. i myself i haven't had a full-time job in over two years and have been working largely for friends or in, within my community and providing services in my community to make ends meet. And it's worked out wonderfully. It's worked out great. Heck, last month, I, I, I had to pay my rent in cryptocurrency last month because I found I figured out at the end of the month that 80% of all the money I had coming in was being paid in crypto uh, by people in our agorist community. And the biggest flack I've taken on Twitter this year wasn't for any of the Timothy McVeigh tweets or the bad jokes about the nap. It was for saying that the silver lining of the vaccine mandates was it was going to force a bunch of people into agorism.
Yeah. Which, yeah, I mean, that was kind of my point, too, earlier with, like, the Soviet Union. It seems to be, you know, the more dire it gets, the more we lean into it. But it's, like, it's one of those things where, like, I mean, no, I'm not religious, but people always, I remember growing up in the church, people would always make the case, like, why is it we only come to God when when things get really rough? Like, you should be coming to him when it's good, too, which is, I mean, like, say we get through this, I mean, I think, think we're in for rougher times or equivalently rough times for a while. Uh, but like, let's say things magically get better. I don't think we should forget the lessons we've learned from 2020. It's kind of the point I'm getting right. at. Um, cause yeah, that was my the analogy I'm making with like the church. People always like, why is it like, you know, whenever your marriage is falling apart or you're, or you're in me- uh, medical he- health is bad that, Oh, that's when you start praying again. Like you should be doing that. Those things when you, when your good things, times are good as well. And that kind of applies to things like praxis, which I, I my point is I don't, like I wish we'd a lot of a lot more of us adopt this stuff for sometimes you need a wake up call. So there is that, that benefit of that. And hopefully, you know, more people wake up to that. Um, yeah. Hey, I don't honestly, know. For me, for me, the lockdowns and the pandemic were the trigger, but it wasn't, it, it was something I'd wanted to do. And it's something I had thought about for a long time. It's like, I, I want to go into self-employment. I don't want to be working for somebody else. I want to live my life more outside the financial system that's regulated by the U.S. government. And it was when my insurance brokerage I was running got shut down because of COVID. I'm like, okay, we're going. We're doing it. Yeah, and- no, I I feel the same way. That's a, I mean, I definitely made a lot of life changes. And, uh, and I don't necessarily say I can think I can say they were entirely because of COVID, but I was kind of already considering doing said changes. But it definitely... Definitely. I mean, the biggest thing is uh, you'll know I got a active duty military. Uh, so that was I had been kind of already planning on doing that, but that definitely made me more resolute in it. And also, I mean, it definitely was like I could see the upside because uh, I don't th- I think we're dealing with a failing uh, beast. Uh, I don't know when it's going to fail. I mean, I had already always theorized in my head, like before 2020, I knew this was destined to fall, you know, due to theory and all that, you know. It just was it, like, it was like, yeah, it's like a math problem. It's going to fail, but it's a matter of when in my head, I was like, oh, 50, 100, 100 plus years. And now we're in the point where we're like, oh shit, is it, are we looking at 20, 30, 10, five? What, what are we looking at? And even then, like, what is failing? What does that mean? Like there, there's a whole lot of, a lot of uncertainty. And I don't think one of the big things for me was like, I don't really, I want to be as, untethered from the beast as possible while it's dying so like i because like i know there is some intuition like say with like the military that like well there's a steady paycheck if you know if the economy's failing like you know at least you'll have that but it's like yeah but if the economy's failing you're you're part of that thing that's failing so i mean i know a lot of people are like oh are you worried about like attacking citizens or something crazy like that not really as a mechanic but like but (laughs) i was infantry yeah, so even then I'm like, no, not really. Uh, but that's not my concern. I'm more like, I think we're about to see inflation. And I I, I think for one, I think the culture of say something like the military is going to get really shitty here soon. Uh, like yeah, they're going to like ramp that stuff up. And I also think even economically in the future, you know, probably within the next 10 years or so, I think with inflation, I don't think that the, uh, like they're going to be able to raise 
the income uh like you know you were in the military so you knew yep. they gave pay raises to kind of like match inflation i think we're going to see rapid inflation i don't think the pay raises are going to match it so i think slowly and like over time i don't think it will work out well but my point being is you don't want to be dependent on something especially something that's failing so it's going to be a lock-in for people in the military too it's just going to make it harder to get out because mm -hmm. like already like military the military isn't paid all that well comparatively to what your military job would be in the private sector it's not paid all that well and in most I disagree, places honestly <laughs> in my yeah. where i was uh mostly work stationed in camp edwards in massachusetts compared to what people on camp edwards were making uh, from their military salary as to what they'd be making in the greater Boston area as a civilian, nowhere close. Wait, and wait, where where were you stationed? Where was this at? Uh, Camp Edwards in Massachusetts. Okay. Well, I don't know what the cost of living is like in Massachusetts because I, I was here in Florida. Retarded. So, I mean, I can go ahead and tell you basically after taxes, I was making roughly 60K a year. Uh, so, and as an aircraft mechanic with no fucking, uh, no certifications, I had no college. So, yeah, I mean, I, it's, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not like I was like killing it, killing it, but it's, uh, for considering my certifications and what I was doing and stuff, I definitely was doing well. And you also got to think all the benefits, healthcare, healthcare is expensive right. as fuck. I, I definitely think I was, I was doing quite well. But I mean, obviously, I was Air Force, you were Army, you were in a different place. That's the big thing. A lot of people don't realize that, like, uh, depending on where you're stationed, it makes a huge difference because the the housing allowance and shit like that. So you know, I don't know. Uh, I definitely think we got more than well compensated, and that was probably the the hardest thing of walking away. Is like fuck. I, I definitely took a bit of a pay cut. So well, yeah. In the Northeast, it, it's like you look at your paycheck, you look what your friends outside in the civilian world are making. It's like okay, but I can shop at the PX. Like everything's dirt cheap on mm -hmm. base. It's like an army base is a modern day company town. Like yeah. the, the money is paid out to people working on the base and it's spent right back on base at fucking ACs and PXs. And it keeps that money circulating in its own like closed economy. And one of the things like I predicted, I like half jokingly said it when Biden said he was going to end the war and we were going to be looking at a military drawdown. I'm like, that's just going to speed up economic collapse because yeah. if they start an actual drawdown and start like purging the military to get down to like sustainable numbers, then you're going to see places like Fort Bragg in North Carolina collapse. That entire city is based off the economy of the base. Yeah. And even then for people in, I mean, if anyone is listening that's in, I, I was in for 11 years. I was in 2014 was when they had the last big drawdown. I think we're about yeah. to see a bigger drawdown. And 2014 was absolute trash. And it still, uh, to when I got out, there were still effects because – I mean, obviously, yeah, we're we're both anarchists here. I'm not a, I'm not in favor of the military, blah, blah, blah. But, like, if you're a guy working there, we all know the way the military works, how much fluff there is in the yep. fucking – in the military. But where did they go to when they wanted to make cuts? They immediately went to personnel. They didn't make any cuts from anywhere else. So – and then it was – but they didn't slow down the mission at all. So you were still doing just as much work with less people – and honestly, the way they did it then is they took they went by people who had like anything against their their the people who had DUIs or even minor things against their record. They're boom, gone. And so a lot of those people were like your people had experience. So we like we for years and years and years had a huge cut threw everything off. But and it, it was just miserable and it had a huge effect on the culture, on 
the morale, everything. And I think we're going to see that worse. But uh, And they also, around that time, too, uh, Obama was pushing in a lot more. I know it's going to sound silly, but it became a lot more PC. Like, I know in my, my unit, we used to have, like, a donger, the maintenance unicorn. It's what he's called. We used to have stickers of them all over the place. And it was a unicorn that had a penis for a horn. And it was hilarious. And we had stuff like that. Like, we would just do crude mechanic, you know, man stuff. And around that time, they started cracking out. We had, I knew somebody who got kicked out because he drew a wiener in the aircraft forms. Uh, and it wasn't even like literally on the forms. It was in a piece of paper that was in the forms. He was going to pull it out later, but some women saw and got offended. Uh, they, they got really PC and they kind of backed off a little bit, at least where I'm at. But uh, it definitely had its effect on the culture because uh, I know a lot of people are worried about the military, you know, going all tyrannical and shit. I don't think they're there now, but I do think. It's not necessarily an impossibility in the next five to ten years if they if they turn the culture or diff- around, which they've already set the seeds for. So well, think about how, think about what they're doing with the COVID vaccine. Think about what they're doing with the mandated yep. vaccines in the military. It's like yeah. if you're refusing the vaccine, it's like no no knock against you, but you're out. Like yeah, it's like you're you have a choice, but you're the fuck out. And what they're doing is. Like you're gonna have people who are making decision to like best serve their family and stay in and get it even though they don't want it. But you're gonna get a lot of younger people who are like primed and were being groomed for leadership and non-commissioned officer roles who don't have families who are gonna say, Nope, fuck it, I'm out. And you're gonna see a mass exodus from the military of people who with critical thinking skills, people who think for themselves and people yeah. who are willing to question bad orders. Yeah, and they're gonna be left with only the ones who are just gonna follow orders and do what they're told. Yep. No, I don't remember. I was talking to somebody about that recently. Yeah, it was pretty, in a sense, if that was, I mean, maybe that was one of the knock-on effects. I don't know if that was on purpose, but yeah. it was definitely, if it was on purpose, it's genius uh, to do that because it's their way to clear out the thing. They don't even necessarily have to give them any sort of like, because I know in 2014, they were offering people like, uh, you know, like early separation for like with benefit, all sorts of crazy benefits. Nope. I'm like, I'm sure all these people not taking the vax, I'm sure they'll probably get all their normal benefits they would get getting out. I don't. I know a lot of people are freaking out. They're getting dishonorable discharges. I highly doubt it. I guess it's possible. I don't see that happening. But my point being is, like, they're they're going about it way more ham-fisted, and they can get them out like nothing. And yeah, and it does definitely has this effect of who are you keeping? You're keeping the compliant people, which I know a lot of people say the best leaders are the best followers. I've always found that to be horseshit. Being in the military, Honor. the best leaders were. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a balance. I don't, I'm not saying like either. Obviously, there are people who like, hey, man, we need to do this thing because I was like a mechanic. And there is some instance of like, you know, experience of like and sometimes maybe you should just trust someone's experience. So maybe you don't always want to be the crazy guy who's just a dick and just, you know, just questioning everything, takes everything and doesn't push back at all. So there is definitely a balance to be had there. Yeah, so, we had a joke in the infantry that the best NCOs made E4 twice. Yes. Yeah, we we had similar <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, so it, it's like it, I remember. Uh, I remember one time a friend of mine got demoted from five to three for a DUI mm-hmm. on orders. Um, in National Guard days, we got sent to a school. He got demoted, um, and then a couple months later at a drill, the sergeant major and the uh, colonel come to our fucking drill uh, to do something with our unit, and he notices my friend walking by, brand new, fresh rank on his uh, uniform and sergeant major like oh is that new congratulations he's like wrong way sergeant major like oh it happened to me three times (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah no it's it's definitely it it, he do learn the military there there are ways about it like it was well known that like good leaders would like 
like say for example my boss like uh, someone who'd be like would say hey i need you to do this and in my head i know that is the dumbest fucking way possible to do that and like my people are gonna hate me and like usually what would happen is go oh okay yep and then you just do it however you're gonna do anyways and nine times out of ten you're fine and then there are ways around that i mean most of the time they don't even double check they just want to be able to take, you know, and when you do it right, they take credit for it. So it doesn't matter anyways. So, you know, you know what I mean? Like there, there, there's definitely a lot of isms to that. Like the, the military is a bureaucratic mess. That was another big thing that made me want to get out. Cause I did 11 years. So like I, I was an E6. So like I was, I was definitely starting to get to like the upper crest of the enlisted. And I was like, dude, I don't, I don't fucking like this. Cause it's one thing where you're some like little, you know, little E3, E4, you know, E5, you're like, all right, cool. I'm just doing my job. You know, especially the E5, you're kind of like a first line supervisor. You're kind of just now you're taking care of the guys just doing their job and also showing them how to do theirs. But once you start getting to those like uh, upper management or mid-level management, you're like, dude, fuck this. This is awful. <laughs> like, like I, got, I got my five and five and I was on fast track. And I remember I was having conversations with my platoon sergeant like about like next steps for me was either like six and six or ocs he's like we don't like you have the option we can send you to ocs you'd be a great officer or you'll make an incredible nco it's like you need to make a decision before the end of the year which one you want to do and he was flabbergasted when i came back six months later said i'm not re-enlisting yeah like after like seeing the shit and mine was i got orders for a domestic security operation with the national guard and then uh realized halfway through it's like oh all these orders are illegal we are violating the constitution we are doing all sorts of yeah. dumb shit i can't be a part of this anymore yeah i put out a tweet today that is kind of funny that we're talking about this now i said <laughs> the irony of the oath of enlistment is by uh by the act of swearing it you break it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no it, it, it yeah go ahead. It, it's just wild shit but like i i always like in 2016 somebody asked me about my experience in the military and how i landed in libertarian politics and i told them the united states military is really good at a couple things killing people and making libertarians yeah but i also think to some extent they're going to make authoritarians because uh yeah. i had forever ago i had shane on uh shane hazel and we kind of talked about and i i summed him up uh to two major categories of people that end up in the military as a Freedom was like warriors or what I call them. I, I had like one classification and the other one was cocksuckers. And like <laughs> those are the two major classifications because some people do naturally find their niche in like, hey, here's power. And right. I'm kind of like, I like this. And like I'm learning how to use the system because even me, I knew how I could have used the system to to gain it, to get where I wanted. But it was just like I it wasn't even necessarily that like I, I mean, to some extent, you almost borderline respect some people uh that do it i guess it depends on how they go about it how they use the system if they're a cocksucker about it because there were some people i know they'd be like you know this is what i gotta do to promote and like whatever they were cool but there were some people that just like naturally they they kind of drank the kool-aid and they went that way it wasn't even that they were consciously doing it they were subconsciously doing it because they recognized that as being the correct and righteous thing to do because this is what they were being told it's one thing if you're playing the game because you know this is what i gotta do it's different if you're like, oh no, I bought this lie, hook, line, and sinker. This is what this is what good leaders are. This is what I'm supposed right. to do. This is because my fucking, you know, my little booklet on leadership said so. Blah 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 blah. Like, and that's when you're like, dude, holy fuck. And so it does, it does kind of create those two different classes. I mean, for me, I could just never be the I like sorta kind of played the game, 
to some extent enough to kind of like get left alone, <laughs> like, but yeah. not to the extent to where like I would like excel because I was just like, dude, I can't, like, I can't be yucking up with these fucking losers. You know, <laughs> like, I don't want to be one of these people's. <laughs> right, but I, I think the the question to come out of all this is like, how much did your experience in the military influence like where you landed politically, like where you are today? I don't know. It's really hard to say. Uh, I don't know because I don't necessarily can't think of any specific. I mean, I kind of naturally was already. I don't know. I get. I can't really necessarily think. I mean, I feel like I might be attributing. Uh, you know, what's not necessarily motive, but attributing something that wasn't necessarily there. It just kind of naturally happened. I kind of went along the line of like listening to podcasts and stuff. But I did. You know, maybe as I became more aware of theory and actually started thinking about stuff like this, I started applying my daily situations like. Oh, this, that, this, like, oh, this could be done that way. Oh, look how much we're paying for this part. Like, and so like a lot of this stuff starts reinforcing and you're like, oh, I mean, I can't necessarily think of any specific examples of it that I, I mean, guess it was kind of unique because yeah. you have people like me and Adam Kakesh and others that like I've known that have been very vocal about their experience in the military turning. And it tends to always be people who are in combat arms and in infantry or engineering yeah. who were like on combat deployments and saw war crimes being committed or participated in war crimes and had a crisis of conscience about it, who come to that realization that everything's bad and we were the bad guys. Um, I've never actually heard someone come from a support MOS, like a mechanic, yeah. uh, who says it was their military experience that influenced their politics. Yeah, and that's almost more pervasive. I had a, I think it's episode 58 or 59. I highly suggest anyone listening go check that out. I had a guy on who was like a, you know, I think he was an aerial gunner deployed and he did some like awful shit, like borderline war crime stuff, but you can almost make a justification based on the situation. Uh, You'd have to check the episode out, but there is definitely, it's weird. There's almost like two different dynamics in the military because you do have people see combat and it is like, you do have these harsh examples that you really get thrown in your face. But you have people like me who have like more of a support role where it's like, you kind of have a cushy job it's kind of like, oh, I got to play this game. It's more of the yep. bureaucratic shit. Like for you guys, it's more like in your face, like right. look at this. For me, it's more like, I guess it's more about being able to recognize a little bureaucratic stuff, but it's almost in some senses, I'm not at all trying to say I had it worse than someone who saw awful shit happen, but in some senses, it's almost more pervasive what somebody like me goes through because it kind of, it kind of more subtly buys you into it. You know what I mean? It makes it harder to see, I think, in some ways, the, the shittiness of it. The big thing that really clicked for me, and it always stuck with me, someone made this, like, supercut video of, like, Dave Smith and, like, uh, fucking uh, Scott Horton talking about Yemen. And uh, and they, they, they were, like, showing while they were talking, like, pictures. Uh, I'm sure someone out there knows it. I can't remember where it was. It was a pretty – it was a video that kind of made the rounds uh, way back when. And it – really clicked with me they're talking about yemen and all the shit goes on like the jets i worked on refueled the jets that fucking like <laughs> bombed yemen and shit so like right i mean so for me it's like dude there's the direct connection like yeah i get it i'm just fixing the planes but it's like i i'm part of this and then it also is for me i guess maybe that's why i'm more of a theory nerd in some senses because I, I guess i kind of had to apply theory to be real and make it tangible what was going on because like or from the bureaucratic side of things, because that is more applicable for somebody like me. I can apply, like, look at this bureaucratic nonsense, look at the perverse incentives that are being created here by, you know, 
by leadership, by this like this why why is it that we're seeing these unspect unspectacular people rising to the top? These people that are just like clearly don't like it's like yeah, there are cool there are people who are good leadership, but they're they're the exception and not the norm. Like, why is this happening? And like you kind of start applying these principles of like how government works, and then you realize, oh, that's why. You know, like and then, and then you guys get the more like in your face, tangible shit. So like it seems to be like guys like you, the combat guys, usually do like enlistment and get out. And they're like, fuck this. Like, whereas right. like people like me, they usually get a lot of times hooked into multiple enlistments, um, you know, the full the full hook line and sinker, the full 20 years. And it's because, you know, we're chasing that uh, retirement and it's like, whatever, I'm just fucking fixing planes, you know? Yeah, and, no, I, you when know? I talked to Adam Nutter about like his experience as a New York police officer, it was the same thing. It's like, by the time he came to the realization that everything was fucked up, he's like, well, I'm so far in retirement's not that far off. Yeah. It's, it's a real hard thing. It's a real hard thing to walk away from that pension and those benefits, especially when you have a family. Yeah. And the thing is too, the problem is become, you become acclimated to the, that situation. So for say like, I mean, don't get me wrong, like combat people usually see some awful shit and they end up, they end up having different, it, it fucks them up in other ways that I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not even necessarily trying to compare. It's different, yeah. but like for me, like, for example, I have wife, I have kids, I have a house, I have stuff like that. So I got acclimated to the standard of living. Whereas somebody <laughs> like a four year fucking dude who just was, you know, in the desert fucking grinding, like, he just made some. I mean, for him, it's like not really that big of a deal to be like, "This is gay. I'm leaving this. This is awful." Like, right. but for someone who's like, "Dude, I have a fucking mortgage to pay. You know, my kid needs <laughs> braces or whatever." Like, right. like I know this is yeah. like first world problem shit, but it's it's like it, it is like well, fuck. Like, or or I could just you know keep grinding away this 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 job and you know become a little bit more dead inside every day. You know, what I mean, like I, I don't know. You know. Yeah, no, so, it's definitely first world problems, but like we're in the first world. Like these are these are yeah. real problems, and the people that we need to act, the people we need to like see the light and come to our side on things are in the first world facing first world problems. We're I, not trying to save Honduras; we're trying to save ourselves. Yeah, I will say though, I've noticed a trend of a lot of people uh, in the same, roughly same position to me, to where they were further along in their career, mm -hmm. being like. Nope, I'm good. And I think they're kind of creating perverse cult. And these are people who aren't even like libertarians or whatever. Like they're they're not doing it for philosophical or moral reasons. They're just saying like this is this awful because they have gotten to the point where it's getting so bureaucratic. They're fucking with a culture. It's just it's just becoming drudgery for these people. And they're slowly it's just becoming worse and worse. And they're walking away. So the government's slowly shooting themselves in the foot. So I'm seeing more of that, and I think the more the incentives flip to where people are starting to realize, like, oh, this is shitty, the more people are going to pull away. But it is also the more they're kind of sucked in to some extent, if that makes sense. So because the no. more the deeper they're into their career, the more like, ah, oh, shit. So it, it totally yeah. makes sense to me. And honestly, it does surprise me that certain people in support MOSs don't kind of get the like hit real quick about how corrupt, like. Fraud, waste, and abuse classes are classes in how to commit fraud, waste, and abuse as much as they are how to recognize and prevent it. But, like, my terminal orders, like, when I was on my way out, when I said no to reenlistment, like, two weeks after I rejected reenlistment, my company got deployment orders. And they're like, well, 
you're not going to come with us unless you re-enlist. I'm like, I'm not going to fucking re-enlist. And yeah. so they transferred me over to a supply company to work in CIF as the fucking pick things up and put things down for CIF guys for the next six months until I was done. Yeah. And holy shit, like when they started training me in the fucking supply job, like end of end of budget year purchase orders. Like, I don't know how that doesn't make anybody who works in supply against government waste. Yeah. No, I, I remember when I went to, when I made E5, they sent me to leadership school and I remember they yeah. t- broke down how budgets work for the, the <laughs> government, for the military. And I was like, even me, I mean, I was a little bit more like, a, I, if, if I had to say where I was at in the fucking, like in the spectrum uh, on my, my, my journey at that point, I was probably more in like the Dave Rubin fucking spot where I was like, I mean, not Dave Rubin now, but Dave Rubin, like three, four, five years ago. I mean, you know, I guess Dave, I guess Dave Rubin now would be roughly ish too, but I, I was kind of that Crowder Dave Rubin spot. Uh, so I was like kind of that like minarchist libertarian ish conservative ish. But uh, even then I was still like, wait, what? Like you guys are given budgets. And if you, and if you guys go over it, I mean, you guys aren't able to go over it unless, I mean, there are like forms you can fill out to yep. be able to possibly go over it. But if you go under it, it will reduce your budget. And you ha- you must get to it. And if you get to if you meet it exactly, and you request at the end of the year, like, hey, this was enough, they'll expand it. I'm like, well, now apply this to every fucking unit. Like, obviously, the incentives right. are use all your money and request more money. So, like, I mean, I, like anyone with a couple brain cells to rub together and go, wait, what? Like, this is going to exponentially increase costs. <laughs> yeah, the, the worst thing i've ever seen is because like i went to massachusetts maritime academy for college i i was the weird kid in the army who like during my college time went to a naval academy and was figuring that i would go work civilian side for the navy because what the pay was like after i graduated college and working in an engineering department on a navy ship for like an internship in school while still in the army was one hell of a weird experience but I remember watching a chief engineer in the Navy fill out a purchase and requisition form for $40,000 worth of O-rings. And then having like the third kid fresh out of college, like, why do we need that many? That's like 10 years worth of O-rings. He's like, I don't know what the fuck else to buy and we have to spend the budget. Mm. Yeah. No, they would, uh, (laughs) I know for our units, they would come around they'd be like, what do you guys want? You guys need anything? You want anything? New boots, new, like, Yeah, like, I don't know, ping pong table, what, what, a gym, I don't know, shit like that. And it's like, yeah, I don't know, it just blew my mind. But, I mean, to your point, uh, you were talking about, that, like, I don't get how people don't get that. You got to think a lot of these people are just, I mean, I know you kind of were at the end of your enlistment and you started fulfilling a supply role. Yeah. Uh, but most people that, like, say the supply guys, that's going to be, like, their MOS. And they came in off the street out of high school and they're taught, like, hey, this is what we do. And so you're just kind of like, hey, this is what's going on. And it doesn't quite click because uh, you're just some new guy. And you don't – when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you're probably not really thinking these things. You're, this is how things are done. Yeah. They've always been done. They're always yeah, you also, done. Yeah, you also just came out of tech school, basic, whatever. Yeah. You're still, like, impressionable. You're, like – you're just – you're not even really thinking about this. You're just glad that, like, the reins are being let off a little bit off of you because you're, like – I mean, I don't necessarily know how the army goes, but I know basics sucks tech school sucks but a little bit less and then you get to your fucking your first duty station you're like wait you guys are cool 
basically as long as I don't get a DUI or like rape someone and <laughs> like I can just basically do whatever as long as I'm at work and time and like yep. there's no weird like I'm to march or doing any weird shit like that. You're like, no, you're good. I mean, maybe salute people when you're in uniform. That's about it. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> you know. It's a little bit different in the infantry. You still have to do stupid shit in the infantry, but yeah, um, yeah. I know Air Force is a little relaxed. I know I remember I had a buddy once who was like, he, while I was in, he was like, he was former army. He was like, doesn't it suck? You know, don't you hate having to come in every day and come in early and do PT and all this shit? And I'm like, dude, what the fuck are you talking about? I show up for work and fucking fix planes, then go home. Like it's a job. <laughs> like, I know. Yeah, I, I mean, I, every I, once in a while they make us do PT, but it's about I, it. I, do, I do think that culture is a little bit different. There's an Air Force base in Massachusetts, Hanscom Air Force Base, and I'd occasionally have to go there and do stuff. And the culture on the two bases was so wildly different. Where like the army guys, it, it's sure you have to show up at 4 a.m. for PT. It's fucking grinding, miserable work. But then in the off hours, nobody gives a shit. Like mm. you're walking around, like you don't have your hat on, hands in your pockets. Nobody's gonna say shit. Like the workday's done. Who cares? Go home. The Air Force Base. If you miss a salute to a second lieutenant, you're gonna have a sergeant major down your ass. Yeah. Like it. It was just a little bit different, but like nobody had to show up at four in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Nah, dude. Yeah, lieutenants are the funniest, especially the longer you're in, the more you're like. The more obvious you're like, what is this gay shit? Like, this dude is some dude fresh out of college and he's supposed to be in charge of this entire unit. Like, I have a mortgage, two kids, a wife, like, and some dude that I <laughs> I could be like rip his limbs off and beat him to death with him and like probably beat him in any sort of logical test whatsoever. And like he's supposedly in charge, and you also know he's not really. He just has some senior NCO that is like basically yeah. has his hand up his ass and using him like a puppet. Like <laughs> Hey, like, like I, what? I, I've had great lieutenants. I've had terrible lieutenants. Like I, I've had a lieutenant who, after getting a briefing from Navy SEALs, said never go that way without a battalion-sized element and dedicated air support. The next morning said, okay, we're going that way with 20 guys uh, because he was chasing a badge. I've had, but I, I've had a lieutenant who showed up. Like he showed up for PT at four in the morning, his first day in the unit, just got transferred. Didn't tell anybody he was a lieutenant, was just hanging out, smoking with the guys. And then he comes down, like, he's like, Oh, yeah, I'm the lieutenant. I'm like, Oh, but you're cool. Are you sure you're a lieutenant? And then he goes and changes, comes out. He's like an older dude, and he's got his fucking butter bar and his SS badge and all his combat deployment badge. I'm like, Oh, you're prior enlisted. That makes sense. And then my last, I call it my turning point mission because it was the mission, it was a deployment, it was a, security mission in boston massachusetts that made me realize we were fucking wrong and that was the straw that broke the back and i had to get out of the military i was the highest ranking enlisted person to volunteer for the mission and so i end up being the ncoic of a fucking battalion sized element as an e5 and i'm like well this sucks and they introduced me to my lieutenant who's the only officer that volunteered and the Lieutenant walks over kids, 22 years old, had just graduated college four weeks ago. Hadn't yet been to Bullock. Uh, so hadn't gone through basic. The ink is still wet on his commission. And I'm like, this is going to suck. He introduced himself. He's like, you're in charge, Sergeant O'Donnell. I'm like, you're the smartest officer I've ever met. And then later that afternoon, when we were walking uh, to delivering food to our guys at all the checkpoints we'd set up, a protester sits down in front of us in a lawn chair and starts reading a fucking book. And the lieutenant starts screaming at him. He's like, you're obstructing traffic. You're going to be detained. I start dying laughing. The lieutenant's like, what's so funny? I'm like, he's reading 1984. 
And then I had to explain the plot of 1984 to a college-educated second lieutenant when I realized, you're the dumbest officer I've ever met, like, yeah. in the same day. <laughs> yeah, you know, that was something that got on me. I mean, I actually, I have to say, I've never really had many issues with, like, lieutenants. I mean, some, like, higher-level officers uh, I've, I've never really had issues with, but it'd be kind of like the, and really some senior NCOs where they have this idea of that I should, like, treat them, like, some, like, with some deference, like, borderline, like, they're, and a royalty and don't get me wrong get it you gotta do the salute all that shit and like you know do your formalities but they would have this air of like i'm better than you and you're like and you could just tell that like you're not a very impressive individual and like and that's a through line of the military in general if you just read a little bit you're like and that's really just i guess humanity in general but still it's like it's even worse you're like oh we have this strict rank structure that like and like these people really get off on being you know, above other people. And you're like, dude, like, yeah, you don't really, you don't really hold the key. And I, it's not even to be like, I'm some, like, I, I don't think I'm really a genius. Like, uh, I, but it's like, dude, you don't hold the candle to me. It's a lot of like, it's a, a, one of the biggest problems that I've had with bad lieutenants is when they don't respect the experience of people that they outrank to that point. It's like, you might have studied the book. You might know everything they told you to do in OCS or Officer Basic, but it, like if you're not listening to your NCOs who've gone through this a hundred times before about what doesn't actually work, then you're not a smart individual. Yeah, I mean the way it works where we were at in the Air Force is usually they had a senior NCO they were paired up with, and so really like they were just a mirror of them. Like uh, I don't know. For example, I used to like dip back in the day when I was a, like a mechanic and. Like I had a few different LTs that were like when they had a senior NCO that was really like wigging out about that. Like we shouldn't be doing that. Like there'd be LTs that catch me like, Hey man, don't, 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 don't just come on, put that out. I don't want the senior NCO see you do it. And like, like <laughs> yeah. they're literally just a reflection of where their senior NCO is. So yeah. I, you know, I never really had too many issues then. They're generally cool, but it really is like the only suck of the senior NCO sucked. But even then you knew it wasn't really them. They were just kind of being their senior NCOs bitch. <laughs> It, it tends yeah. to there, there tends to be like a real clear like what was your path to becoming an officer? Were you an ROTC kid or an academy kid? And it's like oh yeah, almost universally it's the academy kids who think they're better and that they know better. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, no, definitely the prior enlisted guys were always the coolest because yeah. uh, they 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 know and most of the time they they usually it seems like the prior enlisted you talk to them and they did it from this like position of like it's kind of this idea of like, I'm going to fix the system, which we can kind of apply that to libertarianism easily, but like, it's the same idea of like, Oh, I'm going to, and, and there is something valiant in there. It's, it's, it's like, you know, a good LT that's like prior enlisted. is kind of the equivalent of like a Thomas Massey or some shit. We're like, right. you know, like, okay, cool. You're, you're working with the system. You're kind of helping people out sort of, but at the same time, the system still sucks, but it's a nice reprieve, you know, like, so yeah, they're they're definitely they they came there because they were like they saw how shitty it can be and they really genuinely did it from this position of wanting to help people out. And the funny thing is, it seems like they get burnt out and just fall into the rest over time, anyways. You know, so as they get higher up, yep. but yeah. No, I had a friend of mine who had uh, pitched an idea of something that he thought would be great activism was because Smedley Bucket Smedley Butler's War is a Racket is in the public domain. You can print it up as much as you want. Mm, would be great to book, print. Yeah print a copy to mail to the cadet mailbox of every single cadet at all three service academies. Like yeah. you might only get the message across to like 2% of them, 
but that's two percent that are going to get the goddamn message yeah no that's a great book for sure i probably I, maybe i ought to do like a live reading on that sometime or some shit that'd be a good one you bet, whatever yeah. you finish the anarchist handbook yeah yeah no i started doing a live readings of agris primer with caleb uh brown uh from i forget what his show is now he just changed it to something else like faith and praxis or some shit but uh yeah no it's a yeah, I think I might start doing more of those more often. I uh, m- might see what my patrons want, see what, what they're interested in. But, yeah, I don't know. You run out of content after a while. <laughs> you become Jose the audiobook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I, I Weirdly, like the, the uh, Anarchist Handbooks ones, I'm not doing live readings. But those ones have really yeah. – those have been kind of what has made my mark, uh, sort of, if whatever little mark I have, I guess. I've definitely – those definitely have been great. And they've it, been kind of cool, too, to, like – Cause I'll go through and read them and I'll read them like multiple times to get them to sink in before I have a guest. Yeah. And, and it's kind of fun picking the guests. Like, uh, I think I haven't talked to Pete yet, but I think Pete might be the next one. Uh, God, which one is it? Is it, I'm blanking what the name of it is though. It's a uh, Plunkett, which was, uh, I think, I think that's the one we settled on. I talked to him like, I think like a month ago. Or so and I asked if he was cool doing that one. And that's, uh, that's the, I forget the name of the publication. Uh, emma goldman had but she uh she had the publication i guess there was she was always really good about like essentially minimizing the fed posting essentially right and uh i guess there was one time where she was basically out of town or some shit and somehow one fed posty one snuck in so she didn't really get to have her say and she was like <laughs> livid about it when it came in so like the, the essay is literally all about like political violence <laughs> So, it, it would be perfect for that yes so it, it's pretty great i mean it's coming from a lefty perspective but it, it's funny if you look at the historical context you can kind of totally see we're like well they're pretty justified like because it was like i guess like a union strikes type stuff I, I i have to go back and read the more of it but uh essentially the um the well-to-do connected uh oil barons or where i can't remember specifically who it was were essentially using the state to conduct violence against the the unionizers and they were they was kind of talking about how well we'll, we'll use violence right back bitch <laughs> no, I, I jokingly give malice shit all the time for the anarchist handbook i'm like it, no original thought all he did was republish other people's work um it, I, as a joke lovingly joking because like there's a lot of work that goes into curating and picking the right things and the right chapters and putting them in the right order to get the message across. And like you said, a lot of it was timing. A lot of it was just his audience and like his cult he built being ready for it. Mm -hmm. But it it, it really is a work of art and how he put it together. No, it's great. I love it. I mean, I still haven't even completely finished it. Uh, but yeah, no, it is, is great. I'm really hoping that like the series I'm doing will have its own effect. Cause I mean, we're going to be realistic. People aren't going to read these like, but I think there might be some case for people maybe might actually consume podcasts of it. Cause you know, I'm doing it and I'm doing each section in like an hour and I'm trying to go for more of a, not necessarily joking, but more of a light aesthetic. We give you the basic context of what was going on. Um, like for example, I did, uh, I had the, the David Friedman episode I did recently. I, I got Jeremy Kaufman to do it. And I know a lot of people are like, Oh, get David Friedman on. And don't get me wrong. Like it would be get great to get David Friedman to do David Friedman's work, but I was going for a different aesthetic and right. Jeremy more fit that aesthetic. Cause I guess I more want to appeal to a younger audience. Cause if I had David Friedman on, I'm sure it'd be great. And I would love it. And all our other autists would love it. Right. 
but it would be very much an autistic, like, you know, breakdown from Friedman. And, but I think something like more Jeremy Kaufman, which is, I guess, a little bit more hip to the, the younger crowd. I don't know. It has a different feel to it. It's, it's more digestible to other people. So, and that's kind of what I'm going for with those. So, yeah, it's, and it's reaching a different audience with the same material. Yes. So, in a different I, manner. And it's like, yeah. that's, I think, really the crux of like, content creation today is like everybody's trying to rip each other off everyone's trying to do the same thing when people should be trying to do their own thing and reach different people yeah no uh there's definitely something to that yeah i don't know i'm definitely i'm definitely looking forward to it and i definitely try to like pick out the main points to be brought out of it and then i also try to then put them in a modern context um so like for example with the pete one i'm sure i'll probably bring up um you know how like the Cause I know a lot of people like uh, if you have an ANCAP read that selection, they may just be like, well, look at these filthy fucking socialists, you know, <laughs> you know, going for violence. But it's like, okay, well, uh, you know, well, how were these oil barons being propped up? Was it by the government? Were they in bed with the government? At what point do we consider them not the government? How, why was it not okay for these people to, maybe you can make yep. the case that it wasn't necessarily smart for them to do so, but were they morally correct in doing so? I don't see why not. Like, uh, or or advocating violence in, in return, you know? So, I don't know. It'd definitely be interesting, you know, breaking it down in that way. So Hey, you don't need to sell me. I've been the one campaigning that the nap is a bad philosophy from the beginning, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, I come from, it's funny, we talked about earlier, I'm an egoist. I don't yeah. necessarily look at, the, the nap isn't my guiding principle. My yeah. guiding principle is what is best for me. And I know that sounds awful, but it, it's, uh, a lot of people might be more familiar with, like, Ayn Rand. But if you apply the Ayn Randian type, like, you know, uh, selfishness virtue, is a virtue. Yeah, yeah self virtue. Uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. Like, selfishness being a virtue. It's the yep. same basic concept with egoism. I think egoism is a little bit uh, more digestible, a little bit it's weirdly. I say more digestible, but if you read ego on its own, it's confusing as fuck. But once you get the basics, it makes, I think it's more consistent and makes more sense than objectivism. Uh, you know, objectivism, I know people are going to read out there. Uh, but it, it, it's funny, uh, you know, uh, egoism was kind of like what, I, I mean, whether she agree, admits it or not, or whether she actually did it or not, it's kind of what uh, objectivism was born out of. And uh, yeah, that's kind of my ultimate guiding principle. So like what's best for me? I just think what's best for me is what's best for society at whole. And what's best for that is a nap. Uh, and so, but if I'm in an individual situation where, there for some reason or another the nap is not advantageous to me or my individual situation um i mean okay uh, like me you mean that but i don't people like oh that's shitty it's like well it's not unprincipled for me <laughs> I, I, I joked that like true believing pacifists are just people who have never been hungry yeah I like mean, like that you have a natural instinct for self-preservation like to deny your natural instinct is not going to like suit you long term so yeah. like if you if you deny your natural instinct for self-preservation you're not doing what is best for your own liberty so how can you do what's best for anyone else's and if you extend that it's to egoism and objectivism it's like what's right for me is what's most important yeah, and, and even then to apply it, what's right for me is to have a society in which, you know, because, I mean, what's right for me is what's right for my family, which is what was right for my community, because I exist within these realms, and I think what serves those best is the NAP. So, like, I and for, if I want to up, if I want the NAP, NAP to, you know, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for, to be propagated, to continue. It's best if I live by that way. Now, there might be individual situations where my short-term needs outweigh the long-term needs, uh, and for whatever reason, maybe they aggress it. Like, I don't know, say a situation like, I don't know, say someone attacked my fucking, my family, and then, you know, they then were no longer aggressing and they ran away. I'd already, like, say, killed a couple of the people that were doing it and the person was going away. Maybe if I had some inkling, this person may return and maybe I don't know for certain. I mean, at the end of the day, like, I'm more concerned about my safety and my family's safety. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe someone could make some case that that's not breaking the NAP. But, I mean, I don't know. I'm not necessarily saying I wouldn't. I mean, like, you know. A little, little shot to the back of the head kind of deal, you know? <laughs> hey, it all comes down to it all comes down to how you define initiates if you want to yeah. get around the NAP and argue that you didn't break it. And that's been one of my big problems with it is like the cultists, the cult of the non-aggression principle, people who take it as their sole guiding principle in life and like everything has to be not compliant, not compliant, not compliant, don't realize how vague of a philosophy it is. And, yeah. like, it can be used to justify just about anything if you play with the definition of words. Yeah. I do want to – you kind of brought up something I've been thinking about a lot lately. I know the big thing lately in our movement is the – it's the people who are, like, you know, that this is how it's being framed right now. It's, like, the principled people and the people who are, like, well, we need freedom or whatever. And, like, we got to we gotta do what we got to do. And, like, I don't know if that's unprincipled, whatever. And it's, like – I think if you're in a situation to where your principles don't comport to reality, then you probably have shit principles. So I'm not necessarily against principles. I just think right. you need either better principles or reorientate your perspective. Cause I actually think it's bad. Cause I have heard some, you know, maybe not necessarily major thought leaders kind of make rhetoric that is along the lines of like, well, maybe we shouldn't be so principled. It's like, well, I actually don't like that because that sets a bad precedent of like you know kind of to some extent conceding that your principles are bad it's like well you should be if you're in a situation where you're conceding that your principles are bad you should be finding different principles not abandoning principles you should be finding different principles right. or maybe you know finding a different perspective from which to understand your principles so because i i don't like that i feel like it's kind of this uh because people are like well we gotta do what we gotta do we gotta you know I'm, this is one thing Konkin talks a lot of that your your means should uh, should comport with your ends. Uh, they should be consistent with your ends. And I think because a lot of people are like, well, I need to do this thing, and I know this isn't necessarily uh, consistent with my principles, but you know, in the end, it should work out. It's like, okay, but now you set a precedent. <laughs> you know, like so, like no, it's not going to probably end up with your ends. So, like maybe you need to find a different way to understand it because you need to find a way to make these things match up. And if you're in a situation like I'm kind of almost taking the third position in this like in this realm here, because I actually like the principal people and the big things, the public, uh, public, private thing. I've been making the case for a while and this isn't an original thought. I kind of got it from Konkin is we need to be looking at the public private divide, not as a binary, but as a spectrum, um, yep. because that's what it is. And a lot of people are like, well, how will we know? Like, maybe hell no, I don't fucking know what to tell you. A lot of people are like, well, where do we draw the line? I'm like. I'm sorry, I don't have a perfect line to draw from you. You need to use a little bit of rationality and be able to determine, like, roughly, like, where this is at on the spectrum. If you're not well, perfect, I don't want to tell you. We've seen libertarians being willing to shift that line in the past year with the mask mandates and COVID mandates. And, like, when it comes to things like private business and private property, all of a sudden, 
after years of defending private property and the right to discrimination, the same people who had a problem with Gary Johnson saying bake the cake all of a sudden have a problem with private businesses having mask mandates because they're public accommodations. And so it, it's like it's a shift in principles, a shift in understanding of principles, but realizing like at what point is a private business an extension of the government because they've incorporated under the government law, they use the government for liability protection, and they use the government for asset protection. Yeah, and this is exactly where I'm getting it, where it's much yeah. more, I think it makes it way more understandable and way more uh, able to you know accommodate with principles if you make the shift of understanding it this way. Because it's like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to act like fucking Apple is a private company. I mean, they right. are to some extent. Or Facebook. Uh, yeah. But but even then, on the other end, you know, some little ma and pa shop down the road, they're not entirely private either. But they're more like 99 and 99% private, 1% public. And, right. you know, it, it, I know a lot of people, it really breaks the libertarian brains to understand it that way because they're like, they really want this like clear delineation to where like, well, where, when is it this? And when is that? I'm like, well, it's, that's the nature of fascism. It, it <laughs> blurs the lines. Like, I'm sorry. At some point, these are actors of the state. So, I mean, so for example, with, um, say with like DeSantis and then the old wheelie, uh, wheelchair, uh, is fucking like anti mandates or whatever. It's like, yeah, I'm sure if I could have maybe legislated that I could have made it a little bit more consistent, but like, I mean, like, even then you got to understand it's under a spectrum. So you're not always going to get exactly what you want. And I'm not even saying I advocate for what they did, but like, I mean, maybe if you understand it along those lines, it's a little bit different. Ideally, I would prefer that, like, say with like the Santis's stuff that it didn't apply to smaller businesses or maybe right. businesses that don't fall under a corporation l label or something, you know? So, but yeah, I, where you know. I landed on that, it was during our last executive council meeting here in New Hampshire, where the executive council soundly rejected federal mandates. They said the federal government cannot come into New Hampshire and spend money to impose a mandate. Uh, an executive councilor then proposed a resolution to ban employers from having mandates. And the governor spoke up and said, no, the moment you do that, we're slipping into fascism and communism. We cannot regulate private employers from making voluntary contracts with their employers, employees on any manner in which they want. It's like, well, I get, we, you, we don't want a mandate from the government, but fighting a mandate with a mandate is a bad thing. And I'm sitting like, hell yeah. And but then I look a week later, and one of the biggest hospital systems in the state is verge, on the verge of shutting down because they can't get nurses because the nurses don't want to be vaccinated. And at what point is like a hospital system a critical a piece of critical infrastructure and an essential service to the state and the community in which it resides? At what point do you have to tell them you can't have these mandates because you have an obligatory service to provide because you lobbied for a certificate of need from the government? And told everyone else they weren't allowed to build another hospital here. Yeah, you lost me for a second to that last statement. And I'm like, yes, okay, you're getting what I'm saying. Because, yeah, that's what yeah. I'm saying. Like, they are, I think, basically, like, 99% of the fucking medical system at this point is essentially a wing of the government. So, yeah. like, if the government is, if the federal government applies some sort of mandate and then the state government provides an anti-mandate against these organizations, it's kind of like, I know, like, even me, I came in, you know, we were talking about agorism at first, like, I'm not necessarily advocating for one or the other, but I'm definitely not advocating against either. Cause it's like, to me, that's just government fighting against government. Like whatever, like, you know, cool. Like I, I don't give a shit. Like, 
I'm not, you're not going to find me complaining when the government tries to stop the government from doing government shit. <laughs> I, I, I'd love if healthcare looked like what it looked like 40 years ago, where it was more of a decentralized market-based approach, where you had direct primary care was the norm. 40 years ago in this country, people had relationships with personal doctors and personal doctor's offices and local clinics where they got their treatment. But it's not because of healthcare laws have made it so expensive and impossible to do business as a private practitioner with all the overhead and legal liability that they're forcing doctors into these large medical groups. And they've forced consolidation into big hospitals that are then hyper-regulated by Medicare and Medicaid as an arm of the government. Yeah. No, I, yeah, medical insurance is like fucking ridiculous. So goddamn expensive. I would like to see more solutions pop up. I know I saw one thing I was looking into, maybe possibly looking to recently, was like a fucking uh, they're doing like more health shares and stuff, which I, I don't really know the pros and cons of that. Um, yeah, there Tom Woods an episode on it recently, so we might. I don't know. I mean, the more they get bloated, the more we might start seeing you know things to compensate because yeah, it is it the medical system is just insane at this point. So. Yeah. Well, it's sure going to be interesting uh, to see where things do land because, unfortunately, I don't think we're near the end of this. Like, we're two years into this pandemic, and it seems like they only just keep on ramping it up and making things worse economically and socially with all the new rules. Um, yeah. And like now, we're seeing with airline travel becoming an arm of the government, with them mandating masks for airline travel or mandating how airlines handle things. They're talking about regulating interstate commerce, so people who want to drive trucks can't drive trucks across state lines if they're not vaccinated. Um, and it's going to be a big problem moving forward. And I don't think things are going to get better in the near future. I don't know. I ju we just had Robbie, uh, Robbie Bernstein on Tower Power recently. And uh, I'd kind of been thinking this a little bit, but it's like I don't want to, you know, get too hopeful. But I think we might be starting to see a pivot. Um, I think they may slowly drop the, the pandemic thing and shift to something like global warming. And I'm not even necessarily saying that Again. in a way I, I don't, I'm not even necessarily saying that in a way of like things will necessarily get better. I think they might just get different. I think they're going to slowly, if I had to guess, I mean, I might be wrong. I think they're going to slowly drop this COVID shit and act like they were right all along, but like kind of almost kind of ignore that any of that ever happened and shift into global warming. Cause they are getting to a point where it's just, at some point, it gets to the point where they're fucking the economy so bad that it, it goes against their incentives to where it's like, all right, now it's fucking their game up. There's a certain level, and I think they're getting to that. I think they're getting to the, the wits end of a lot of people. Public opinion is not really. And I've also started to see more news stories that are kind of slowly backing away from the COVID narrative a little bit. I, I don't know. I mean, I just think we're getting to the point where it's just like we're – I don't see it. I mean, I think they'll make this push. Republicans took a super majority off. in Virginia Yeah, and Yeah, and you're night. seeing stuff like that. So I think I think they start backing off and pivot. So that – because, like, it's kind of one of those things where, like, instead of just, you know, stopping and, you know, acting like, you know – even even if they just stopped and then, did, like, kind of ignored it, they got to have a pivot because they need to have something else to redirect their energy to. That way they can be like – Oh, well, we're not focusing on that. We're talking about global warming. Because, you know, I mean, they need some sort of other thing. And I, I don't know how crazy they'll go with that, how primed they've gotten us to just comply. Uh, I mean, that could be creepy because to some extent, the global warming, uh, in some ways, they almost have more ground to stand on 
in a certain sense, like especially for them, like scientifically, uh, they have a little bit more grounding to stand on because they can be like, well, this is firmly planet science. It's been going on for decades and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not, I'm not even saying that's true. I'm just saying they have a little bit more of a grounding to stand on there. So that might be a little bit more creepy. They have I don't an autistic 14-year-old to put up front. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I could be wrong. They could keep cracking on the COVID shit. I'm not necessarily saying things will get better. I'm just saying I think things will get different. So I think they may drop the COVID narrative because uh, I think they've gone to the wits end of it. So I don't know. Well, but, it, it's going to be a fun, fun watch and fun ride. And uh, I'm just going to keep doing me, keep doing agorism, mm-hmm. keep living in my community and uh, watching it all unfold and voting to secede this year because that's how I'm going to be on the ballot in New Hampshire. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. all right. Uh, Jose, we're at our wit's end, running out of time. Um, well, actually, we went over time. Mm-hmm. Easy to do when you're having a good conversation. Where mm-hmm. can people follow you? Uh, I'm on YouTube. I'm on Odyssey. I'm on all the major podcatchers. I have the I'm the No Way Jose show is what I have. Uh, you can follow me at Twitter at, at Galley San Jose, or you can just type in Jose Galley San in the search bar. You'll find me. Uh, if you want to support my work, you can find me at Patreon.com. So it's No Way Jose 2020. Uh, I'm gonna I'm trying. I want. I think I might start adding more perks to my uh, members. I think I might some of my like. Uh, you know, premium, the guys who pay like 10 or 20 bucks a month. I may, I may start offering more, whether it be suggestions. I may see if they want to do like live readings or, you know, book breakdowns, just stuff like that. So I might be offering more. I'm definitely, especially if you're one of the higher paying ones, I'm definitely willing to offer more stuff. I mean, especially that's kind of a double thing. It gives me more content to work with. And it's also rewarding my patrons. And I definitely appreciate all them. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think if I forgot anything. I think that's, I think that's it. Yeah. I'm on tower power hour as well. If you guys want to follow that, uh, definitely Odyssey, Odyssey, Odyssey. Uh, they have gotten two videos taken down so far on, on Tower Power Hour. The last episode with Robbie is only on Odyssey right now because they gave us a weak ding of where we couldn't post on YouTube. Uh, somehow my channel has not gotten dinged at all. I literally just did an episode with Jason Rink on January 6th and uh, the, uh, the, the religious ritual that ca- uh, ca- happens every four years, the possible uh fortification of it uh, uh i mean i guess I, i'm being silly because they didn't get my channel so i guess for the two <laughs> seconds i mentioned it here you'd probably be fine but yeah i don't know how that hasn't gotten taken down yet we did a whole thing on that uh definitely go check them out i would highly suggest you having them on as well uh, i don't know if you've gotten dinged on your channel you can always afford one and it's really something <laughs> important to uh to uh move because the big thing with him is he created a documentary uh he was making a documentary on election fraud and then they fucking um, and then January six happened, and then it became two uh, two documentaries because he was there on January six following the election fraud story, and so it became two. And he definitely is he he's gotten like really screwed off of like on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, everything basically taken down. He's really screwed his reach. He has what looks to be in a really high quality. He got a uh, interview with the Buffalo guy um in, in the the second documentary so it looks like it'd be really interesting so he's definitely going to struggle when it comes to distribution so i mean if we talked about agorism and you know if we want to create the counter economy me and you are basically the media counter economy so like if we want to do that we need to fulfill our role and i think we need to have people like that on i understand if you're somebody who already has one or two dings in your channel that you can't afford another one but like me and you, we don't have any, so there's no skin off our back. If we get dinged, whatever. It's not well, I share my other channel with Jeremy Kaufman, so I'm always worried about dings there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Ofer does ask in chat what your favorite part of the show has been. 
Uh, I don't know. It was kind of fun talking inside baseball with like military stuff. It's uh, yeah. I haven't done that for a while, so that, that was fun. And then kind of providing the contrast between uh, you know, being a combat MOS and a support MOS. So that's fun. All right. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on here. Until next time, everybody else, be free. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again for tuning in and joining us tonight. Make sure you hit that like button and leave a comment below to let us know your thoughts. If you haven't subscribed, go ahead and hit that big red subscribe button on YouTube and turn on notifications to get alerted every time we go live. If you enjoyed this content, you can join our production team on Patreon by following the link in the description. And don't forget to follow on social media and join our community Discord channel by following the links in the description as well. The best part of all of this is the community that we're building and growing. So go ahead and join us. And thanks once again to our awesome sponsors and patrons for making all of this possible. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always catch it the next day on YouTube, Odyssey, Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. So until next time, everybody, be free.